Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. If I were to have you write down what factors in your life make you happy and joyful, what would you put on your list? Would you put the forgiveness of your sins near the top of that list? Would it even actually make your list of the things that make you happy and joyful? As we, as we march through the valleys of life, the low points, the difficulties, we can easily forget the gospel's blessings of being forgiven. But remembering that our transgressions have been forgiven, remembering that is a beacon of light that can shine through the most despairing of times we face. Last week, we talked about the despairing issue of our sin. Of our sin. We asked the question, what are we to do when we sin? And we saw, as we looked at Psalm 51, that it teaches us that turning to God in confession is the proper response to our sin. It's the only proper response to our sin. We ought to look to God for mercy and forgiveness because He's the only one who can forgive. Now today, we're going to look at Psalm 32, which pairs perfectly with Psalm 51. These two psalms actually deal with, we believe, with David after he sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband Uriah. And almost a year later, after these sins and his lack of confession for them, the Lord sent the prophet Nathan, you might remember. He sends Nathan to confront David. And upon confronting David with a short little story and then calling him out that you are the man in that story, David confesses his sins. So these two Psalms deal around that issue in David's life. And Psalm 51 would come before Psalm 32. Psalm 51 gives us David's prayer of confession and repentance. Psalm 32 follows that up from David with his writing about his delight in God's forgiveness and then the lessons he learned through all that. So as we keep that context in mind, let's read Psalm 32 together. It begins, A mascal of David... Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they will not reach him. 
You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. We see this psalm is a mixture of different elements. It has some thanksgiving in there. It has some penitence, some repentant expressions in there. But this psalm is mainly a psalm of instruction, carrying those different features. We see that with even that superscription there at the beginning. It's a maskal, a song of instruction, of wise instruction. And David's point in this psalm for us to learn is that true joy is found in God's forgiveness of our sins. True joy is found in God's forgiveness of our sins. Now, we could break this psalm up into two different sections. The first would be the blessing of forgiveness in verses 1 through 5, while the second half would be the path of understanding in verses 6 through 11. So let's begin with the blessing of forgiveness in verses 1 through 5. He begins there, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. Blessed is this man. This is the the theme of the whole psalm. These two verses are the main driving theme of the rest of the 11 verses. It is that this person who has been forgiven is blessed. So, for practicing our good Bible study skills, we want to know what does the word blessed even mean? I mean, it sounds a little familiar. I hear it in, you know, the Gospel of Matthew and the Beatitudes. You have things like blessed are those who are the persecuted, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. I've heard this term before. Old Testament also tells me blessed are those who fear the Lord. Blessed are those who don't walk in the way of sinners, but who meditate on the word of God. What does this term blessed mean? Well, very straightforwardly, it means to be happy, to be fortunate, to be in a position of receiving God's gracious good, even when we don't deserve it. So truly joyful, truly happy is this person. You'd almost say truly content is this person because they are in a good position. Now it's natural. It's a natural desire we find among most of civilization to desire to want to be happy. To have a peaceful life where things go smoothly, a comfortable life, for things to go well. Now it must be noted, especially after we've studied Psalm 14, weeks ago, that those who reject the Lord, they will never have this blessed state. They will never find that peace. But those who do trust in the Lord, those who do repent and trust in Christ, do have, they will have, a hope of blessed peace. They're in the best position possible of being reconciled with God. 
Now, you might remember from the beginning of the book of Psalms. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight, this blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. A fortunate man, a happy man, is one who doesn't engage in sin, but meditates and thinks upon God's ways and lives in God's ways. In fact, he's described as a tree that's planted by streams of water, meaning there's life and an abundance and joy and peace. We want to be like that prospering, peaceful tree, the tree that doesn't compromise. But just as this psalm and Psalm 51 remind us, we do fail at times. We stumble. We sin and then we wonder if a joyful life is even possible. If a joyful life in the Lord can still be found. Or did I blow it? Well, the good news is that we can still know this joyful state when we experience the forgiveness that comes from God. Forgiveness brings joy. Charles Spurgeon has said on this, quote, Pardoning mercy is of all things in the world most to be prized, for it is the only and sure way to happiness. It's the only and sure way to happiness. True happiness is not found in the things of this world. It's not found in money. It's not found in power. It's not found in beauty. It's not found in fame. It's not found in the accumulation of stuff. There are countless testimonies of those who have tried to find joy and happiness by seeking those things, only to discover that they are empty and meaningless. And that's what sin brings. Sin and selfish pursuits bring emptiness and they bring destruction. But the gospel brings forgiveness and joy unlike anything else in this world. So you want to be in that blessed position, then you must have the gospel. You must have your sins forgiven. And the blessed man who has trusted in the Lord has had all his sins forgiven. Notice he describes transgressions being forgiven, sin being covered, and iniquity not being counted against him. Kind of like Psalm 51, we saw those three terms for sin being used, emphasizing this comprehensive description of the utter depravity of sin, the utter, utter depravity of man, and that it really is God we must flee to to take care of that problem. Just a reminder from last week, transgressions refer to any willful or knowledgeable rebellion against God's law. You can think of crimes committed against the king. Iniquity refers to the perversion of what is right, being crooked, and it carries guilt with it. Sin is probably one of the most basic terms for rebellion against God, and it just refers to missing the mark, to not living up to the standard that God has set. 
What is amazing about this psalm is as we reflect on Psalm 51 where he cries out that God would have mercy on him and forgive him of his transgression, iniquity, and sin. Here we see that God does forgive transgression, iniquity, and sin. That all of our sins can be forgiven, not just certain ones. They can be forgiven. The word here, For forgiven has the idea, the meaning of being lifted up or being taken away. Your transgressions, your rebellion, your crimes against the king and the guilt that it carries is taken away from you. It's removed. And the way that the word is used here is in the passive sense. Meaning, you didn't take away your own sins. I didn't pardon my own iniquities. Someone else must rescue me from my sin. And as we see that someone is the Lord. God does this. The Lord does such. He forgives, demonstrating His faithful and merciful patience with His people. All throughout the Scripture, it describes God as the one who forgives iniquities. He's the only one. Psalm 85.2 says, You, we're talking to the Lord, You forgive the iniquity of Your people. You covered all their sin. Not just some, all of it. The guilt and the penalty that sin brings is fully removed. God completely removes sin and guilt from sinners who confess and trust in Him and there's not a trace of doubt about it in the mind of God. He doesn't say, yeah, I know I said I forgive you, But I happened to be sitting around and really thought about that time. You did that really bad thing. and uh, You know, I don't know. Uh, You might be forgiven. He doesn't do that. It is fully and sufficiently dealt with. In fact, Scriptures, the Psalms, talk about God casting your sin away as the east is as far from the west, meaning it is completely removed from you. He forgives sins. He takes them away. He covers sins. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. Again, this is a passive term, meaning God is the one doing the covering. Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. When we try to hide and cover our sins, we end up sinning more by sinfully hiding it and trying to escape it. But we can't. How can you hide your sin from the all-knowing God, the all-seeing God? You can't. You're going to have to deal with it and deal with the Lord over it one way or the other. Better that God be the one who covers your sins. Because when He does, He washes them away completely. And not only does He take away our sins, not does he, only does He cover our sins, but also blessed is the one that the Lord does not count any iniquity against us. He doesn't count it against us. He doesn't reckon us as being guilty anymore. You're not guilty anymore when you trust in Christ. Again, God does this. Proverbs, or sorry, Psalm, 
Psalm 103.10 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That is the merciful God we serve that though we fail, we can come in confession and repentance and God does not repay us according to our wicked ways. Instead, He shows grace toward us. He counts us as righteous. The Apostle Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 4. In Romans 4, 6-7, through he quotes... Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, to demonstrate the amazing grace that God shows when He forgives sinners. And He doesn't just forgive them, but He blesses them with a right standing before Him. He blesses them that they're not just neutral because your sins have been washed away, but yes, your sins are washed away, and we are now counted as righteous before Him. It's not just standing before the Almighty Judge and being forgiven. Alright, your sins are forgiven, you're free to go. It is now your sins are forgiven and you're free to come to Him. You're right with Him. You're a child of Him. God counts us not according to our iniquities when we trust in Him, when we confess our sins, but He now counts us righteous by faith in Christ. Works. Do not bring us the blessing of salvation. It is only brought by God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He justifies us. He declares us righteous. Not because of our own goodness, but because we get His righteousness. So blessed is this man who's been forgiven, covered, no longer having his iniquities counted against him, but also, blessed is this man in whose spirit there is no deceit. It is a happy state to to not live in a way that you're trying to trick God or man about your sin. It is better for you that you are honest about your sin. You're honest about your need for the mercy of God. There's no point in trying to hide it from him. He already knows. Better to flee to him. Now I want you to notice, as we read through this psalm and as we look at it, I can't, I can't pass on this opportunity. What name for God is used here? If you look down, you notice it calls him Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which is his covenantal name, Yahweh. It's very interesting that in Psalm 51, David's song of repentance, he uses the name God, Elohim, which indicates he's he's addressing the all-powerful Creator. With the similar expression, God, you created the heavens, you have the power to do that, so create in me a clean heart. Okay, so he comes to God with that humility and he calls him Elohim. He calls him God in Psalm 51. But here in Psalm 32, as he's now experienced the blessing of forgiveness, he declares to God that he is Yahweh. That Yahweh has forgiven him. Well, what's the significance of it? Well, I think there is great significance to it. I think he did this on purpose. Because the name God gave of himself all the way back to Moses, to his people, was Yahweh. And it emphasized his 
faithful love, not only his self-sufficiency, he's the self-sufficient, all-powerful one, but he is the faithful, loving, compassionate God who is loyal to his people. Well, you talk about an expression of loyalty, God pardoned the sin of David, the sins of David. And so God showed faithful and wonderful love towards him, towards his people. The Lord does not forsake his people. And so David cries out to him that he is, he is Yahweh, the one who is always with me and always caring of me. Now, verses 3 through 5, we get a recount of David's story, his experience of what it was like from when he sinned to when he confessed. And we see in verses 3 and 4 the miserable condition that he was in. He was utterly miserable. This is his personal testimony. He says that he's wasting away. His bones are wasting away, groaning all day long. This is, this is the internal agony of the conviction of sin. This is when we've sinned and we are refusing to confess and turn from it, it eats away at us on the inside. He's saying, pretty much what he's saying, it's like his life has been sucked out of him and his bones are so brittle now that at any moment they could break and he would just fall into a pile of ruin. And though he's verbally silent, meaning he hadn't confessed his sins, internally he is crying out in pain, screaming out in agony. And remember, it was about a year long before he confessed. That's a long season of misery. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can relate to that conviction of sin that just weighs on you so heavily, eats away at you. It's like the internal alarm is going off, but and it's so loud you can't avoid it, but you're not responding to it. David didn't respond to it immediately. So it's better for us that we do respond immediately. So David was wasting away. He says he was that the Lord's hand was heavy upon him day and night all the time. He was weighed down. God's hand of discipline was upon him and the conviction pressed him. He couldn't escape it. It's like wearing a weight jacket and ankle weights around everywhere you go. And there was no strength, no life in him. His strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. No strength. Interesting, the words used here have the idea of there was no juices left in him. I have a pastor friend who likes to use the analogy for this, that picture that you have a cake sitting on the counter. And boy, it looks so good. I mean, and you've worked so hard, so you, you just can't wait at the end of the day to cut a nice slice of that cake and bite into it. But it's been sitting out there uncovered for quite a while. So you go to cut it. You're excited, and you go to take that bite, and you're expecting that just moist, soft, delicious, double chocolate, double fudge cake. I'm starved now. Um, And you'd bite into it, and it's dry. There's no moisture left in it. It's just good for nothing except throwing away. That's how David felt. He was a dried-out cake. The juices had left him. It's as if he was carrying around death in his own body. 
But he doesn't stay there. Verse 5. David changes. He repents. He acknowledges his sin. He confesses it to the Lord. And that's Psalm 51 as we read. He cries out for the mercy of God. He turns again to live for the Lord. David stopped trying to cover and hide his own sin because it wasn't successful. It was killing him. Only God can truly cover our iniquities. Only the Lord can cast them away. And when David came to the Lord and confessed, he was there was blessing that came with it. The first blessing is that he was forgiven. His wrongdoings were taken away. They were blotted out. They were erased as if they never existed. That weight was lifted from him. That cry he had in Psalm 51.12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, was fulfilled. God had restored him. He had life again. He took off the ankle weights. Only that kind of deliverance can come through the grace of God. Only God can do that kind of a work. And we know that that work blessing of deliverance and salvation it comes through the work of the lord jesus and what he accomplished at the cross that at the cross all the iniquities all the criminal acts against the king of the universe the treason against the king of the universe our failing to live perfectly as we are required is placed upon the son who willingly is nailed to the cross And so, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, our sins are now counted to Him. He is seen as if He was the one who committed those sins. And God strikes the Son, the Father strikes the Son, killing Him so that by His death, our sins would be completely paid for. That the infinite wrath of the infinite Holy God would be satisfied. And so while He took our sins, was counted sinful in our place, we get counted with His righteousness. We have a great exchange that happens. And so that now we are and forever will be forgiven. And yes, when we still stumble, we still sin. We don't delight in it, but we turn from it and we remember that Jesus, that His work on the cross was enough. It was more than enough. It satisfied God's wrath. And so I am forgiven in Him. Jesus dealt with our sins. The person sitting next to you did not deal with your sins. They may have to deal with living with your sins. But only the Lord can truly deal with sins. And He did that at the cross. You must turn and trust in Him. But maybe you're saying, Pastor Paul, I I have. I've confessed my sins. Uh, I'm trusting the Lord. I'm trying to live in a way that's pleasing to Him. But I don't feel blessed. What's up with that? Well, we must recognize we live in these fallen bodies in a fallen world. And there is a battle that wages war on the mind. There is a battle that wages war against us and we must keep our thoughts fixed upon what we know to be true. What we know to be true. We finished with 1 John 1.9 last week. 
It says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the truth. But you say, but I don't, I don't feel blessed. I don't feel that happiness, that joy. Well, it is good to evaluate, is there a sin in your life you need to repent of? But you must flee to what you know to be true. I ask you, do you believe that? That that verse is true? And I hope you say yes. And I hope you continue to say yes. So when my feelings and my thoughts drift, and I don't feel truly joyful, I need to take my thoughts captive and bring them back to what I know to be true. And that truth is that God forgives me by His grace. That what Jesus did on the cross really does bring my forgiveness, but I don't feel forgiven. It don't matter what you feel. What we know to be true is what matters. It's that Jesus paid for our sins. Yeah, but you don't know, I stumbled this week. Okay, repent and keep trusting in Christ because we're still forgiven in Him. He's not the shepherd that just beats you over the head with the the staff and sends you away to go figure it out and then when you get better and you fix your life, come back. He's the one that actually draws near to us even when we do stumble, even when we do struggle. That's the truth. Are you clinging to that? Are you reminding yourself of that? Am I reminding myself of that throughout the week? True joy is found in God's forgiveness of our sins. He's the one that provides the way of life and the blessing that comes through the gospel. And the one who turns and trusts in Jesus has been eternally blessed, eternally blessed with the guarantee of forgiveness and eternal life. We must remember that. We must preach that to ourselves. That's the blessing of forgiveness, but he's not done. We see in the rest of the chapter the path of understanding. The path of understanding. As as David had personally learned his lesson of not confessing and the misery that brought, but then he also learned the lesson of God's merciful nature to forgive him when he confessed, As David has personally learned this, he now urges us, he urges the godly to confess their sins to God because it's the best thing you can do. It is the right thing to do. And he gives us here some application. How do you, how do we, how ought we live in light of what he's learned? Well, the first in verse six is that we ought to pray. We ought to pray. We ought to come to the Lord because He is merciful. It says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach Him. His point is we ought to come to the Lord. We ought to not put off confession. Because God graciously forgives those who confess. So don't wait. He's saying don't wait for the troubles of life to make you consider your walk with the Lord. He references this idea of great waters, which in, he's referring to here dangers. He's referring to dangers and troubles that come our way. And so he's warning us, kind of don't be like me, what I was for that year. Instead, don't, don't be foolish. 
Don't wait forever. Seek the Lord immediately before the seasons of hardship come and the Lord seems quiet. This way, when the calamities and the hardships hit you, you already, you're ready for it because you've already been walking faithfully with the Lord. There is no lingering sin you have not confessed and moved on from. And we see a big picture of this in the Old Testament. We think of the history of Israel where they would do a good job obeying God for a short season and then they would drift into idolatry and rebellion and God would bring discipline against them and then they would repent again. But He kept warning them and as He had done in the Mosaic Covenant, you, you disobey, you keep disobeying, there will be consequences. There will be curses. And so that's what they did. They kept disobeying and finally God sent them off into captivity at the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. While God had not fully forsaken them, He brought discipline against them. At that point, it probably fell to them, well, it's too late. God is quiet. God, okay, now we repent. Are you going to get us out of it? Well, He would restore them and bring them back eventually. But better to be walking faithfully with the Lord, confessing our sin now before the troubles of life come. Not only should we pray, we should, verse 7, we should rest in the Lord's protection. We should rest in the Lord's protection. It says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. We can be confident in the Lord that He is with us and He sovereignly works in our life. He protects us in the most difficult of times. He walks with us through those difficult times. You remember Psalm 23, verse 4? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God uses those hardships, those troubles, even for our good, even for our growth and our strengthening our dependence upon Him. But He protects us even in those. He is with us. It says He surrounds us. The word here for surround means to move around protectively. Move around protectively. God is near to His people, those who walk faithfully and are confessing their sin and living for Him. He protects them. Interesting, he protects them with shouts or songs of deliverance. Shouts or songs of deliverance. I found this interesting, so I had to do a little digging on this. And this is what one writer said. He said, quote, Psalm 32 encouraged the audience to trust that Yahweh provides protection in the midst of trouble. He goes on, it is as if the confident songs of those who have placed their trust in Yahweh soar upward to form an impenetrable barrier to repulse the enemy. End quote. That's, that's fascinating. But that's helpful too. As we remember the grace that God has shown us, as we remember how God has provided for us through various seasons, various hardships, as we remember the goodness He has shown us, the blessing of being one who is forgiven. We remember that, and we recall that intentionally, 
And so our mind gets thinking on that and it flows into a reciting out loud of God's wondrous protection and His wondrous providence and His wonderful companionship of being near us and caring for us. And as we do that, it strengthens, it equips, it protects our mind, protects our heart. And it protects us from the attacks of the evil one as we consider, no, I'm not going to follow that wicked, stray thought or feeling because what I know to be true is God is always forgiven and God has always provided for me. And God protects us with that. But He doesn't just protect us with that. He teaches us. He gives us instruction on how we ought to live. Listen, we face many things in life that we would be absolutely clueless without the wisdom of God's Word. And so verse 8, we see a little bit of a shift here. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or will not stay near you. The Lord teaches us. He gives us instruction. Now, there's some divided thought on who's actually talking here. Is this David talking or is this Yahweh talking? Is this the Lord? And while there are good points on both sides, I believe this is the Lord interjecting, reminding David, reminding us that He will teach us. He will help us to know the way we should go. In Psalm 25, 8, it says, He, the Lord, instructs sinners in the way. It's interesting, he says, his eye is upon us. Well, it's not David's eye that's upon us, it's the Lord's eye. Meaning, it's the Lord who watches over us, who is caring for us personally, who is near us, who is loving towards us, who protects us. That's great news! You have the omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, sovereign one is the one caring for you at this very moment. There's no better option. There's no one else you'd rather do that. But God Almighty, He provides what we need to know so that we can live in a way that's pleasing to Him. And He does that through His Word. And then He works within us by His Holy Spirit to teach us and guide us, especially considering the context in the recognition and confession of our sins. When you sin, you have two paths before you. The first is to follow the counsel of the Lord and confess and repent of your sins. That would be the right way to go. The second path is to try to hide your sin and continue on in it. And it is better to follow the commands and instructions and the counsel of the Lord to don't hide it, confess it. Turn to Him. Plead for His mercy. Don't live as someone that lacks understanding of the seriousness of sin. Turn from it. The Lord wants all of His people to know how we ought to live. And the person who doesn't understand, or sorry, the person who does understand God in His Word will turn in repentance. They will confess their wrongdoings. But the one who does not do that, the one who does not confess their sin, but continues on in it, demonstrates they don't understand even the most basic aspects about God and His ways. That God is 
serious about sin. That God must punish sin. That God calls His people to renounce their sin, to have nothing to do with their sin, to live a way that honors Him. But if you won't turn from your sins, if you won't confess them, the analogy here is that you're like an animal. We're like an animal in that situation, meaning that we're a stubborn creature. He describes him as a horse or a mule. Meaning a creature with no moral reasoning to make decisions so that we would know how to walk on a path of righteousness. When we won't confess or even recognize our sins, we engage in a stubbornly rebellious way. And we must not live in this way. Justifying your sin, feeling no remorse for your sin, and doing whatever pleases you is not what it looks like to walk on the path of righteousness. Instead, following the counsel of the Lord is to put away sin. It's to be sensitive to the presence of any rebellious ways in our lives. It is upon any inclination that I'm veering from God's righteous commands, I must repent. I don't want even the smallest ounce of sin. But if we won't repent of our sins, he gives us a warning at the beginning of verse 10. You're walking in the way of the wicked, and the way of the wicked is full of sorrow. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, meaning many are the pains of the wicked. A life that doesn't follow the Lord's instruction brings more and more pain. Refusing to confess is just pouring more misery on your life. But there's a better route. And that's the route of following the Lord where it says steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. There's joy in knowing the love of the Lord is upon us. And that we want to turn away from the sin and I want to walk in the steadfast love of the Lord. His steadfast love, His loving kindness, faithful love, His loyalty and grace that He shows His people. It brings peace to our anxious mind and our weary soul to know that the One who cares for us loves us and forgives us when we confess. He's the great shepherd who rescues us from destruction. But he doesn't just rescue us, he also cares for us every moment of the way. So don't turn and run from him to pursue your own sinful pleasures. Instead, turn to him and draw near to him. Delight in his gentle care. Seek to live faithfully for the Lord. And it says, trust him. Trust him every day. Trust him with everything. Through every hardship. Trust in that He forgives your sins. Always. And rejoice because your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven when you turn to Christ. This is the path of understanding. The way of holiness. It begins with confessing and repenting of our sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus for His salvation. 
And then we walk upon this path following God's commands, seeking to praise and glorify Him. And when we stumble from the path, we are wise when we quickly confess and turn again to the Lord. And all along the way, we have the great joy and delight because we are right with God. We know God. He is with us. He teaches us His Word. He forgives us. He has promised that we will make it to heaven one day. And we have that hope that we will be with Him forever. So rejoice. There's great joy because even when we fail, God's grace abounds even more. We aren't barred from going any further on the path of righteousness. But if we look to God in confession, trusting that He does forgive us, we are blessed. And we go throughout every day of our life rejoicing in the Lord's goodness towards us. Because we are truly blessed when we trust in Christ. And we don't need to live in fear or worry. There's enough of that in the world trying to be spread to you. There's no fear or worry in Christ. He's got it. He cares for us. God forgives sinners who confess and trust in His Son. That's the good news that David is helping remind us here. So let's remember and let's rejoice. And when we find ourselves stumbling in the fog of despair, cling to the truth of God's Word that teaches us that true joy is found in God's forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that there is complete forgiveness of sins in Christ. That You are so kind to us even though we don't deserve it. You are so patient with us that even when we still sin, we still fail to live according to Your perfect ways, we know that the cross is sufficient. We know that You do not leave us nor forsake us. But instead, we can cling to what we know to be true that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, may that truth resonate in our hearts and our minds this week. And when we're quick to let our feelings, our emotions, our thoughts go astray, give us the strength we need to pull them back to remember the truth. And may that produce great joy great delight and rejoicing in you. May you receive the glory. In Christ's name, amen.